morning here at Bereaven Bible Fellowship. And may the Lord continue to bless us as we meet together for worship and wait on him for the, the, the blessings he has in store for us yet in the service today. If you have your Bibles, let's uh, go back to John chapter 21. That'll be the place where we'll be looking today. John chapter 21. I want to reread one of those verses that was read a moment ago. We'll ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll look into today's message. John chapter 21. Let me reread the first verse that was read a moment ago, verse number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are just grateful for this day. We thank you, Father, for your watch care over us. We thank you for the snow through the night. It's always a reminder to us that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We're grateful for that, Father. Thank you for the astonishing power of cleansing that is in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash us clean from all of our sins. And thank you for each person here today who knows that. And Father, I pray for anybody that may be outside of grace, who may not know Christ as Savior. Oh Lord, always use your word to reach out to hearts like that, to draw them to yourself. May this place ever be a fervent, warm-hearted, gospel-preaching place that has a heart for souls. And then Father, as uh, those of us who are here today, who know you, we think of uh, your admonition here several times to, feed her, to, to Peter, feed my, feed my sheep. For the, those here today that belong to the fold, who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, uh, Lord, just give us a freedom now to listen to you and open our hearts to you. Help us uh, with those things that perhaps are burdens to us that we may have brought into this place, that uh, we would not be sidetracked or uh, taken up with those things now, but to, to focus, knowing, Lord, that you have encouragement for us, you have nourishment for us, you have grace for us, and maybe even if we listen carefully enough, you see fit to address some of our needs, some of those worries and cares that we may have brought in with us today, even through the message today. And I pray, Father, that you would just bless to that end. May no person go away today without a sense of your presence and a sense of your goodness. Help us, Lord, to be able to open our hearts in such a way that we are here to glorify God. Thank you for how wonderful you are. Please meet our needs. Please help our focus to be taken up with you and not ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, back before we got involved with the Christmas and the holiday season, we had been talking on Sunday mornings, a little series that I would entitled Penetrating Questions of Jesus. This will either be the last or the next to the last of those, but uh, it's the last one, so to speak, as we come to the end of John's Gospel. And I'm toying with another one that I actually skipped over earlier in John's Gospel, but it has to do with the whole of John's Gospel, so I don't know. I, I'll just be praying about that. We'll see. But uh, we're coming close to the end of this. Uh, penetrating questions of Jesus. We find the question that we're interested today in verse number 15, as you may have suspected there, and I have just simply rephrased it this way, do you love me more than these? That's a pretty potent question, especially when we take some opportunity to delve into the context. But of course, what I'm really interested in is not so much Peter. Well, we're going to talk about Peter because we have to do justice to the text. But what I'm really interested in is how God may see fit to apply what was going on in the life of Peter in our own lives as well. Specifically, I think what Jesus is inquiring to Peter about is the subject of commitment. I guess I've preached lots and lots and lots of times on the subject of commitment. Uh, 
I think it's something that we all need to be challenged about because we can fancy ourselves to be committed. We can think that we're committed, but sometimes it's easy to drift away. Or you can sometimes be talking to people who have never really made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to give us the opportunity in looking at three aspects of this in the life of Peter today. The subject of commitment, following the Lord. It's give us an opportunity sort of just to sort of review the whole subject and uh, give ourselves what I'd like to call this morning the commitment test, because that's what Jesus is talking to Peter about, and that's to some extent what he is calling into question. Of course, there is some background to this. So there are three aspects. Let's take a look at them. The first of all is professing. You know, there are a lot of people who profess to be followers of Jesus. Now, it is true that in America today there are less people who say that, but all along the way, most of the time, people would make a profession to follow Jesus or to know Jesus a whole lot more quickly than they really would live that way in their lives. But was Peter, if we think about taking this from the life of Peter, was Peter a follower of Jesus? And of course the question to that is yes. Do you know the story of how Peter came to be a follower of Jesus? We go back to the first chapter of John's Gospel. It might be helpful because we're going to be looking in another place and sometimes it's really helpful to get the uh, the actual progression of these events helps really to explain uh, some of the other things that we're more familiar with. But this is the record in John chapter 1 where Peter first became a follower of Jesus. And we pick that story up in verse number 35 where John the Baptist, it's recorded what he was saying concerning Jesus. I knew him not. That's verse 33. 33. Sorry, let's drop to verse 35. And again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So here you have John directing his followers now to become followers of Jesus. And verse 37 says, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to, to say, being interpreted master or teacher, Where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John and followed him was Andrew. What's the next part say? Simon Peter's brother. Kind of natural, isn't it, if you become a follower of Jesus to have an immediate burden, especially for people who are close to you, people who are a part of your family, your immediate close friends and loved ones. That happens here. Look at the next verse because this is not the subject so much for today, but it's a, classing soul -winning a classic soul-winning text in the Bible. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. What words those are. I'll tell you, I think I could just quit right there if I were Andrew. I mean, I, give, I, I wouldn't have to do anything else. I could figure if you'd lead Simon Peter to Christ, you would have done your life's work, wouldn't you think? So I think back, I, I alluded to it not too long ago, to that story about uh, the primitive Methodist church. I didn't really get into details to it, but it was a snowy morning, a little bit like this, only there was a good bit more snow. S Charles Spurgeon started out that Sunday morning to go to church, and the snowstorm turned him aside from the particular church he was headed to, and... He found a primitive Methodist church. He walked in. Of course, snow had uh, caused a problem in the church there as well, and not so many people were there. In fact, the preacher didn't make it to the service. Well, they had a layman who was sort of charged with handling circumstances like that, and he got up to speak. And it was through his message that 
as, as, as humble as it was, it was through that message that Charles Haddon Spurgeon became a follower of Jesus Christ. I think I could have quit right then if I was that primitive Methodist layman. That would have been all I would have needed had I really known what was going to happen at that point. But that's what happens here. Andrew has a burden for his brother. He brings him to Jesus. And we find after we continue reading in the verse, and Jesus beheld him, when Jesus beheld him, says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So here's the record, the earliest record really that we have, the one that we're going to be looking at for a moment that is maybe a little bit more familiar in the context of Jesus being a follower, or rather of Peter being a follower of Jesus, actually happens later. This is the time when Peter first becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, or to kind of consider it in the way that we often look at these things, this is where he first comes to the Lord. Well, is Peter a follower of Jesus? Yes, we can look at the next part of this. It, because uh, one day Jesus comes to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. And when we begin reading in Mark chapter 1, again, it is very, very familiar to us. Beginning in verse number 16, it says this, And when the scribes and Pharisees, that's not Mark chapter 1, it's Mark chapter 2. Let's get to Mark chapter 1, or at least I need to. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Has this ever startled you before when you've read the next verse? You say to yourself, really? I mean, Jesus just walked up to two people that he never knew before and said, Follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed him. Well, no, that's what I was trying to point out a moment ago. What we have in John chapter 1 is the precursor to that. It's earlier. The, it shows us that Jesus knew them before. This had been building. And now we come to the place where Jesus is seeking a greater commitment. And so Jesus says in verse 17, Come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And it says straightway or immediately they forsook their nets and followed him. And then... Let's move it along a little further in time, quite recently to where we are actually in John's Gospel at our text. Let's look at chapter 13. Peter has taken his profession of commitment to Jesus and following Jesus to another level altogether. First he comes to become a follower of Jesus, next he leaves the nets because Jesus has called him to full-time, what we would say, full-time Christian service. But now he makes a different profession, a higher one yet. John chapter 13, verse number 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow. See the word follow. Thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Well, Peter fancied himself a firm, dedicated follower of Jesus. And he says, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. So if this morning we are taking the commitment test, at least in this first phase of things, this professing part of things, there are two questions that come into play. Would you be willing to consider these questions in your heart? You don't have to give an answer out loud. But 
think about what the answer to this question is because the purpose of the message this morning is to look at what happened to Peter and to ourselves take the commitment test. So two questions arise. Number one, have you ever become a follower of Jesus as Peter did when Andrew brought him to Jesus? That is to say, do you know that you know Jesus Christ today as your personal savior? Do you have a relationship with him? Sometimes we ask the question a little bit differently. I mean, where you sit today, do you know if you died today, you would go to heaven? Do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior? Because truthfully, folks, it may sting a little bit, but this is really the truth, biblically speaking, of the matter. If we've never been born again, if we've never trusted Jesus Christ as personal savior, we can't honestly or biblically say that we are followers of Jesus. It's the place that it begins. It's the place that it starts. So we have to ask ourselves that question. Do you know that you've been born again? Are you a follower of Jesus in the sense that you have become a Christian? Do you know that you've had a time in your life when you've trusted him to be your personal savior from sin? But another question comes out of this if we're taking the commitment test. Have you ever become a follower of Jesus in the sense of acknowledging his will for your life as when Peter left the nets to follow Jesus? See, that's sort of what that was going on there, really. I mean, that's why I tried to lay the groundwork to show how the time when Jesus meets, Peter meets Jesus in John chapter 1 is earlier. So that later, some time has passed, and, and, and Jesus comes and now reveals more of his will. Reveals what it is that he has for Peter, at least in broad terms. I want you to leave the fishing business. I want you to follow me full-time. I want to make you a fisher of men. Well, Peter, it says, along with Andrew, his brother, forsook the nets and began to follow Jesus. But if we're going to take the commitment test here today, we have to really ask ourselves this question. I mean, really, insofar as God has revealed his will for us, are we following him? He doesn't call every one of us to be full-time Christian workers, but he does call every one of us to be full-time Christians. And his will is very often different because we are individuals. So don't dismiss what I'm saying to you this morning and think that all I'm really saying is, well, I'm off the hook because I'm not called to be a preacher or I'm not called to be an evangelist or whatever. That's not so much what I'm asking. Insofar as God has revealed his will to you, what it is that he has for you in life, what it is that he wants you to do, are you a follower of Jesus in that sense? Or as you think about that question in your heart this morning, can you think of areas where you've kind of come to the place where he's revealed what it is he has for you and you've kind of balked at that? You've kind of reneged on that. And you're not really following Jesus in the sense that Peter and Andrew were that day when they left those nets to follow Jesus, just because that was his particular calling in their lives. Well, we want to look now at the second phase of this, because the second word is failing. You hate to have to bring that up. It always seems like it was a hard thing if a kid failed a grade in school. You know, that was just tough. You kind of had to go with that, you know. I mean, if you failed a grade in school, it, that, that kind of thing, I mean, it, you didn't talk about it every day, but it was there. <laughs> it was kind of one of those things, you know. I failed first grade. But you know something, folks? The truth of the matter is we start talking about the matter of commitment and 
almost all of us, if we're willing to be honest, can think of times that we have failed the Lord. Bringing this right up to date, insofar as what's really the backdrop of this scene at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus singles out Peter and has this time of back and forth with him. That night, the night of Jesus' betrayal by Judas, Jesus quoted that scripture to them, tried to warn them, told them, watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Peter, James, and John were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gave those warnings to them. They didn't seem to listen too much. He even quoted Old Testament scripture where it says, here's this is going to be fulfilled. Smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. They had no ears to hear. And Mark 14 and verse 50 tells us that night that they all forsook him and fled. Peter was part of that. The very person that we saw a little while earlier who said to the Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I am willing to lay down my life for thy sake. But Peter, curiosity sort of overcomes Peter a little bit. And I think maybe it would be good if we looked at this. Look at the 22nd gospel of, uh, 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel. Two verses I want to look at here, comment briefly on each of them. Here will be Luke's account of what I just pointed out, that verse in Mark chapter 14 and verse 50. Here will be Luke's um, account of that, where in verse 54 it says this, Then took they him and led him and brought him to the high priest. Before this it tells us that they forsook him. And then it says this at the end of the verse. Here's a little detail that we get here. It says, And Peter followed afar off. You know, folks, I have the impression that that's where a lot of Christians are. Following the Lord, yes, they'll make a claim to that, but distantly, afar off. Peter has been a, a part of this initial situation where, overcome by fear and, and the mob that's there, that they forsake him. But Peter is sort of off on the outskirts. Peter just has the curiosity there. And we're told here in verse 54 that he's following Jesus, but afar off. Then we get down to... Verse number 62, the terrible denials come. Jesus has tried to warn Peter. He, well, we saw this in John's Gospel, chapter 13, a while ago. Jesus said, the cock is not going to crow two times before you have denied me three times. And in the verses between Luke chapter 22, verse 54, and down where we're going to look at now, in verse 62, those terrible denials that Jesus had said were going to happen had in fact happened. He had denied the Lord three times and then the ending of this, it says in verse 62, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. I tell you, folks, I have read that verse so many times, both here in uh, Luke's account of it and in the account in the other synoptics, and your heart just breaks. I mean, you, you can't, if you are trying to empathize, if you are trying to identify in any respect with Peter, this has to be rock bottom for him. I mean, to deny the Lord in such an outright fashion, to make such a bold profession that that would never happen, and then to come crashing down rock bottom when the Bible tells us that in one of the other accounts, and when he had thought thereon, he wept. And the word bitterly is used here. How can your heart not break for that when you think about that event that took place in the life of Peter? And yet, truthfully, 
And you'll have to understand, as I've just tried to point out to you, my heart goes out when I read this. The truth of the matter is, is he had no one but himself to blame. Why do I say that? Not to be unkind. I don't believe in that because I certainly don't rate myself as higher than Peter or better than Peter. But it's true when you look at it and then apply the same things to our us in our own lives. First of all, why do I say this? I say it because, first of all, he, he overrated his own commitment. We saw that in John chapter 13, verse 37, but I want to now read the verse from Matthew as Matthew portrays the words of Peter when Jesus talks about all of them going to forsake him and flee. And I find it very interesting how uh, Matthew gives this to us in chapter 26 and verse 33. But Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men, though all men shall be, be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Just think about that for a moment. Think about the premium he was placing on his own commitment. Think about what he was saying, especially as it applied to the other disciples. that what he was really saying was, they may all do that. I won't. Now think about that. Think about what he's really saying. And then think about that in the light of the terrible warnings that Jesus gave. I mean, now when we go to Luke's gospel, it's not too hard to flip around right within these gospels because they're all handy. So. Go to Luke chapter 22 for a moment again. Maybe you're still there. And, and again, Luke gives us more details into those terrible warnings that Jesus tried to give, not just to the group, but directly to Peter himself, calling him by name. So if we look at verse number 31, Luke 22, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, do you, do you see how now this is to directly to Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. I think if he stopped right there, that would have scared the liver out of me. I mean, Satan, really? I'm important enough for Satan to show up. I would have thought that maybe just one of the underlings could have handled, the, could have handled me. I'm important enough for Satan to show up. But Jesus says something very comforting in the next part when he says, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he saith, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Ouch. Ouch. Overrating his own commitment, ignoring the clear warnings that the Lord even singled him out to give. This is why I say he really had no one but himself to blame. For some reason, he just had no ears. He had no eyes to see what God was trying to say to him. The warnings that Jesus was trying to... He's so consumed, apparently, with what he had as an exaggerated concept of his, of his own commitment to Christ... And I think of the exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, because there's application of this to you and me. And he says, For I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So what he's saying to us, beloved, is, is this is not really so much as looking around at other people and seeing the things that they can do and thinking you can do them too, as much as it is thinking about yourself soberly, thinking about the measure of God's grace, the measure of faith he's given you. You might be a Gideon. And Peter doesn't fancy himself a Gideon at all. He thinks he's a Samson. He doesn't think it'll ever happen. The Apostle Paul has more to say about this. If you were to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beloved, I'm trying to say there are some very sobering verses in the Bible about this kind of thing that we're talking about now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, the Apostle gives us this warning, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's a very sobering verse. In the book of Proverbs, we're told in chapter 16 and verse 18, a haughty spirit, pride goeth before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. I read some time ago an interesting story, story concerning Arnold Palmer. So that's uh, kind of a legendary golfer for those who might be younger and haven't really uh, known so much about Arnold Palmer. But lots of folks in the audience tonight would remember this. Well, this story comes actually from, from the 1961 Masters when... Arnold Palmer was playing there, and it comes from the last hole, actually. He tells us about himself and tells it humbly and tells it with the lesson that he learned. He says he was going into that last hole with a one-stroke lead. Felt he was in pretty good shape, especially since from the tee he felt he had hit a very satisfying first shot on the 18th hole. Well, as he was approaching his ball, he happened to look over into the stands, the gallery, as I think they typically call it in a, in a golf tournament like that. He looked over into the gallery, and there he saw an old friend. And the old friend kind of motioned to him. And he walked over, and the man put his hand out, shook hands with him, and this is what he said. He said, congratulations. Palmer, telling the story, said, I took his hand and shook it. And he said, the moment I did that, he said, I knew I had lost my focus. He said on his next two shots, one he hit the ball into the sand trap, the other he put over the edge of the green, and then he missed the putt and lost the Masters. He says this, you don't forget a mistake like that, you just learn from it and become determined that you will never do that again. He says, I haven't done it in the 30 years since. You imagine that loss of focus, that adulation from the friend in the crowd, congratulations, and sort of letting yourself believe, yeah, I've got it. All you've done is hit the ball into the fairway. You don't have it. He said it was a mistake he learned from, a mistake he would never forget. Beloved, I suspect that Peter took this with him through all of life. It was a great big ouch, something he never forgot. But if we're taking the commitment test, just to finish this point out, then I think we have to admit that we've all known times of failure, some bitter. True or not true? 
afraid to answer? That's okay. Just think about it. True or not true? Here's the last thought. Returning, and that's what brings us to John 21. See, all of that was just sort of to set the stage for what's really going on here. Peter is the focus of Jesus in this entire chapter. If you remember back a little over a month ago when we looked at the other message from this chapter, children have ye any meat? And it was about leadership, and the focus was on Peter because Peter appears to have gotten restless proposes to the other disciples that they go fishing. But when all of that is over with, then you'll notice that Peter is still the focus because go back to our text again. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, he's still the focus. Really, John chapter 21 is all about Peter. It's two incidents in which Peter is really the focal point of both. Now, Jesus wants to restore Peter. But you know, folks, why Jesus has to take the initiative? Because Peter hasn't. I mean, what does the Bible tell us to do when we know we've sinned? When we know we've broken our fellowship with the Lord and with other people? What does the Bible tell us to do? Well, we have to humble ourselves. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, human nature is such that we'll just do just about anything but that. We don't want to say we're sorry, whether it's to other people or to God himself. We're proud. And Peter just hasn't gotten, found the grace that it was necessary to make things right with the Lord primarily, but you know he had more people to make things right with. He had the other disciples to make things right with. Why? Because he had just told them that they might all flee, but he never would. I could imagine that that just didn't go down so well with them. Do you ever think about that? Okay, Mr. High and Mighty over there. Well, you know, he had been and, and was the leader of the apostolic group. And they saw it. They saw how he placed a, an overly high rating on himself. I'm sure that they were reluctant to poke at him about that. But I just can tell how human nature is that this had caused just a little ruffling of the feathers with them. And more than a little ruffling of the feathers with Jesus, who warned him and told him that he was going to do that, only to have him pay no attention whatever. There were three denials, so there are three questions. And Jesus takes the initiative because Peter hasn't. But I like that about God, don't you? I like the fact that God loves me enough that he's intent on restoring me, even if it hurts. You know, Paul tells us a little something about this when he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you something, beloved, this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you're following the Lord afar off, He's going, to, he's going to be on your tail the whole way through. He'll be working in your life. He'll be ordering events in your life. He'll be working providentially. He'll be working lovingly. He'll be working compassionately, but he'll be working to bring you into conformity to his will. I'd sure rather have it that way than to go straying further and further and further away. 
Let's look at the questions. In the first of them, in verse number 15, he says, Simon, son of Peter, or son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Ouch. What is he referring to with the these? Could be two things. I, I get amused sometimes that it seems people want to argue over interpretations when sometimes I think providentially both are intended. You don't really need to take a position. They're both true. So what about these? Is it a reference to the 153 big ones they just caught? That was in the earlier part of the chapter, if you remember this. Was it a, was it a reference to all those fish? Was it a reference to Peter getting restless and saying, I go fishing and the old life? a reversion to the old life. Was he challenging Peter and saying, that day that I came to you along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men, and you did that, just how serious were you really about that? Or is the these a reference to what he had said about the others? Is it a reference to them? Though all men Though all men should forsake you, yet will not I. Commitment. What level of it are we really on? Some people's commitment's fairly shallow. You hear about the conversation that took place between the hog and the hen? There's different variations of this. I would be surprised if you'd heard it. They were talking in the barnyard one day because it had been presented to ch at church about the need to feed the hungry. So the hen had a brainstorm and proposed it to the hog. The hen said, I've got it. We'll provide bacon and eggs for the church to feed the hungry. The hog thought about that for a moment. Said, there's just one problem with your bacon and eggs suggestion. He said, for you, it only requires a contribution for me, it will mean total commitment. Total commitment. And Peter had failed. He asks him the question again. But something you may or may not know about this, because um, sometimes this is, I guess we've all heard sermons on this before, and we're all familiar with the, the two words for love, and preachers make a great a great deal of the two words for love. And um, they say, well, you know, when Peter is asked the question by the Lord, he says, Simon, do you love me? And he uses the agape love, the highest form uh, or, or word that we have for love. And Peter answers with not a bad word. It's not like it's inferior. It's just not what Jesus is asking. Because phileo or philos, uh, philos actually in Greek is a kiss. And a philos is a friend, so it's, it's the love of affections. It, it's the love of friends. And whereas agape is more the love of commitment, not so much based on emotions, but on a determination that we're committed to doing what God has for us in our lives, regardless of what our emotions are. Did you ever think about what that really means? Did you ever think about if you lived your Christian life according to your emotions all the time, where you would be? Or if you couldn't look to something higher than that and say, well, I know how I feel, but I know what God said. That's hard. 
sometimes because emotions are powerful. So it's not that phileo is a bad word. It's a good word. It's just it's not what Jesus is asking him. So Peter doesn't really give the right answer. He asks him again the second time. And then so often the way you hear this preached is, is that when we get down a little bit further into the text and he asks him again the third time. And it says that Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time. Verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Well, the typical way that we hear this is, is that Peter finally comes up to the word that the Lord uses. How many of you heard it that way before? Okay, a couple people. In that way. In that way. And I'm not trying to put anybody else down. I'm not trying to sound overly smart. I'm just telling you the truth. It isn't that way. Who goes down is Jesus. That's what broke him. It broke him when in the third case, Jesus said, do you even love me as a friend? Jesus picked up Peter's word in the third question. Instead of continuing to ask Peter, Peter, do you love me with this agape love? In the third instance, he says, Peter, you've told me twice in answer to my question that you have this love of friends, you have an affection for me. Then he asks him the third time, Peter, do you really even have that? You say, wow, why does Jesus do that? Didn't, didn't he feel that Peter did have that kind of regard for him? No, beloved, he's just trying to get Peter to the place that Peter needs to be, and that's the place of brokenness. That's the place of repentance, and it happens. Because when he says that to Peter the third time, do you really even have that kind of love? That's why it says Peter was grieved. He wasn't grieved because Jesus asked him the question three times, which is the way you typically hear this, or solely because the question was asked three times, which is the way you, you often hear this. He was grieved because the third time around, Jesus challenged even the weak commitment that he was saying he had. That's what finally breaks him. Peter was talking about the kind of commitment that wasn't quite up to what the Lord was looking for, and then the Lord challenged even that. We're not so far removed from the first of the year that commitment isn't a good subject to talk about, or the fact that this story might be of interest to you. But this one comes from a school context, and the principal decided that he would challenge all the teachers about their New Year's resolutions then told the teachers that he would get, gather them all up. They were to give the resolutions to him. And he would gather them all up and he would put them on the bulletin board so that all the other teachers could go and see what, what their fellow teachers had, had put there. And so, sure enough, it was announced. All the teachers had gathered around the bulletin board. They were all greatly curious about what, what the other teachers had said. But the principal noticed that there was this commotion. It wasn't quite what he thought was going to happen. And in the midst of this commotion, one of the teachers was just really complaining. What she was saying was, why weren't my suggestions or resolutions posted? And she was just having a hissy fit. She was just having a temper tantrum about the things. So the, 
the principal thought to himself, well, I wonder if I blew it. I wonder if somehow I put all the other ones up and, and, and in the corner of my desk, I lost hers and didn't put it up. So he ran to his office. Sure enough, he shuffled some papers around. He found her paper on his way to the bulletin board to make it right and put it up. He happened to read what it had to say. Her first resolution was not to let little things upset her in the new year. Doesn't seem like the commitment was real solid, does it? Or real sincere. So we have to ask ourselves if we're taking the commitment test. When we have sensed those times of failure in our life, when the Lord has dealt with us about those things, have we returned? Jesus comes looking for us. Have we made it right? Have we spoken to our fellow man who perhaps needs an apology because we conducted ourselves in a a way that was overly exaggerating our own spirituality? Have we made things right with the Lord where perhaps we have not followed him and been guilty of following him only with a shallow commitment or following him afar off? Two thoughts I want to leave with you today as I bring the message to a conclusion. God might be speaking to someone here today and you can't honestly say when I asked the question a little bit earlier that you've ever become a follower of Jesus. So I'll ask you a question again. Do you know in your heart? This is where it starts, coming to know Jesus. Do you know in your heart that you're a follower of Christ, that you've been born again? Or he may be speaking to someone here today who, like Peter, has begun, but there's some interruption that's happened, some failure along the way, and now you're following the Lord, but afar off. And maybe the Lord wants to use the message today to challenge you in this new year to renew your commitment to him, to confess that perhaps you're following the Lord afar off and to be more serious and committed to your Christian life. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Do you love me more than these? Dear Jesus, we thank you this morning that we can have this time to use the story of Peter